Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the program, the best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, the next best way is to make a donation either through the Acast app or at our Patreon, which is just patreon forward slash recyclables.com. Until next time, thank you. All right, are we ready to start? You're listening to Recyclables. This is the podcast where I take my friends on my journey where I try to be less trashy or or something equally pretentious sounding. Introduce yourselves. Fight! Wow, you're lazy. <laughs> uh, I am Mix Dahlia Bell. I'm Rochelle Cody, and I'm smoking a joint. Also, Me too. Today, we're, we're going to have fun. This episode is going to drop sometime <coughs> in December. Uh, I personally, I don't know about the two of you, I fucking hate December. It has my birthday. It has Christmas within a week of each other. And in between, a few years ago, one of my good friends died in my hand. So December can just fucking go shit itself. I don't... Yeah, that last one sounds shitty. Yeah. Sounds I don't like, like that at problem, all. problem, Yes, it's definitely yeah. a me problem. I don't like I don't like. Yeah, your friend either. did not die in my hands in December. So, so. all right, true. But my point is... So June's much worse for me. Well, uh, I'll, I'll hate all kinds. I have enough room in my heart to hate every month of the year. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> we don't want to be monthless. Don't uh, be and stingy so, with your hatred. And so, for the next couple, for the December episodes of Recyclables, we're going to cover people I actually like. Uh, if you if you backtrack and listen to their catalog, they're not actually things that have made me happy. The cost of convenience is about the literal cost uh, of convenience on people, human lives. The uh, episode about Diocletian was to cover the fact that, like, the last 2,000 years or so of human history have been following the lead of divine sovereignty and a guy saying, do what I said or else I'll murder you. Great, great system. The Matthew Paul Deddy episode, all about fucking how crappy Oregon's racist history was. Ton of fun there. History of comedy was about the fact that workers probably should solidarize, organize, that kind of thing. Solidify. Solidify. Form. Work. Coagulate. You. Coagulation sounds moist. I imagine it would be. Is it juicy? No. Oh, that's even worse. No, it's. I thought juicy was better. Uh, we have a local weather person who um, forecasts stuff like tendrils of moisture. <coughs> like what? on their Tinder? Is that how they... <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, you were saying about... So, we're talking about people uh, for this episode, maybe the next episode as well, that actually enjoy. Like me. Yes. I would probably do an episode about you if Please we had time. Don't. Okay. We won't. <laughs> I want to I start with a brief little kind of overview of, of history in the terms of historians, because the topic of today's show, Stuart Holbrook, uh, was an early 19th or 20th century popular historian. He featured, he specialized in what he called lowbrow history. And it's kind of important because up until the 1900s, history wasn't for the masses, exceptionally. The first kind of historians in the Western sense uh, were this guy named Herodotus and this other dude named Homer. Homer might not actually have been a person. It might have just been their term for, like, the coolest poet back in Hellenistic Greek days. So, like, if you just got famous enough, everyone was like, oh, shit, it's Homer! Is it, like, goat, kind of? Yeah. Yeah, that dude's that the <laughs> that's Homer. All could yeah, that's, that's all I could yeah. think. That's all I could think. We need to bring that back, actually, now that you say that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm also, not satisfied with goat these days for some reason. When you say lowbrow humor, I assume it's being written with a pen that when you turn it upside down, it, the lady gets naked in the pen. That seems like something Stuart would have, yeah. Okay, um, I'm just I'm just assuming you know mm-hmm. I might be incorrect. The the two important things about Herodotus and Homer. Uh, Herodotus was the first guy to be like, oh, I should go and find out the source of these stories. So there was definitely a tradition of people telling like, oh, hey, this thing happened there and it impacted history. But Herodotus was the first person to go to locations, gather the stories, and compile them and give it kind of a timeline. Uh, and he lived in the spot that was like where Greece, uh, ancient Greece and ancient Persia crossed over. Mm. And what happens is, like, even though they were famously at war, oftentimes the people on the ground aren't. And what it means on the ground is, like, your culture is Persian for a while, and then <laughs> your culture is Greek for a while. Because it's, it's kind of hard to just kill all the Greeks, right? So like, kind of like the West Bank. Yeah, very much. And so you have a culture that, like, he was Greek, but he had a lot of Persian influences, and that's why he writes his history. Homer, on the other hand, is the first kind of, like historical fiction writer 
right? Like, the Battle of Troy actually happened. We have archaeological proof. But he puts a lot of lies in there. Mm. Well, he puts, like, gods and stuff in there. Maybe the gods were real. Maybe they weren't. But the point is that, like, he he tells the story of Troy, but he gives it kind of the flourish that people might have given it. It's also uh, likely that it was... Uh, kind of reminiscent of the oral tradition of history up until that point. So you might tell of this chief doing the thing with this I have chief. lots of oral traditions. So here's a question. Would would Homer kind of be, sim- like, the stories he write be kind of similar to, like, American folk tales, like the, the, the lumberjack Paul Bunyan and Johnny Appleseed and shit? Kind of, mm-hmm. kind of that vibe a little? Yeah, yeah, versus the more... Or like a Texas textbook. Oh, yeah. ow. Ooh. <laughs> Ugh. Uh. Uh, but after that, the, the main people who do history are empires. And you do history uh, for two reasons. One, you do it to keep account of what's going on. Like, oh, hey, we conquered these guys at this point, and then we conquered those folks at this point. So they owe us this amount of taxes. They owe us this amount of soldiers. You also do it as propaganda. Augustus, the, the first like real emperor, one of the first things he does in ancient Rome is commission a bunch of people to write a history of Rome up to him. Uh, because another kind of through line of a lot of historians is they kind of treat things like it's always the end of history. Mm-hmm. Like it's always, this is it. There's not going to be anybody past Rome. There's not going to be anybody past the Spaniards. There's not going to be anybody past America. And it's then, like postmodernism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what happens a lot is it's, it's being written for the powerful people or it's being written by the powerful people. And we kind of touched on it in the Diocletian episode. There will be this thing that will happen where, like, Diocletian is emperor of Rome. So when he massacres the Christians, everyone's like, yeah, that's awesome. We hate the Christians. I still think that's awesome. 400 years later, when the Christians are ruling the Roman Empire, though, they're Not like, oh. so cool anymore. Yeah. So we get conflicting histories. But a thing that happens quite a bit is it's histories follow this trend of the great man style of storytelling which is to say it follows a great man from his birth to his death and presumes they're kind of in charge. Like like, like Jesus. Jesus is a great example. We lost the episode on Washington Irving. Like We recorded an episode about the history of him and how he impacted America. And uh, he wrote like a, a story of George Washington that was very much... His big, really famous book at the time was his like four-book volume on the history of George Washington. Meanwhile, the people that won the <clears throat> Revolutionary War, doing my air quotes again... Uh, were the people on the ground, were the normal people that fucking were fighting British soldiers. Uh, so, Colebrook is born in 1893 in Newport, Vermont. Uh, and he is kind of at the... Uh, we talked about this in the Matthew Paul Deddy episode. America has kind of decided its identity by then. We've been enfranchised for roughly a century. And so at that point, America as it stands is the America that it'll be probably until about the Second World War. And you have kind of, you have, at this point, even though there's no uh, uh, enslaved South, there's still an enslaved, we can have a whole issue about this later, a whole episode about this later. Uh, but the America is roughly divided into three regions, North, South, West. Uh, West includes uh, California, Oregon, to a certain degree, Montana, Idaho, and a lot of places. Don't bring my state into this. I had to, because you're here. <laughs> yeah, you're part of the Western Frontier. I just have to hide my montana at all times. So, they still didn't bother talking about the Midwest, even back then. Kind of, sort of, not really. Like, it's still a No, thing. it's fair. Yeah. There's nothing to talk about. Well, the issue is the Midwest is part of the West. It's just the West that's the more... Ew. Yeah, it's just more settled. That's why it becomes the yeah, Midwest. Yeah, I don't like that. One of the issues, and, and we talked about it in the Matthew Paul Deddy episode, is the further West you go the further away you are from, air quote, civilization, and more importantly, the federal government. So you can do things that are slightly fringe, slightly illegal, and get away with can it. Can we give the Midwest back to the South? Like, we can have that. I mean, it kind of was already. We, I, that's actually an episode. It's like the Northern South. Oregon was way more than Northern South. That's, <laughs> that's, that's what we were going to get to. Counterpoint. <laughs> Sorry. No, Oregon gets called the Northern South from, like... 1870s-ish forward. Like, it's only in our modern... Until, like, 1993. Yeah, it's only yeah. then that they start getting the myth that, like, Oregon is liberal. Because even... We'll get into it in this timeline, like, in, over the course of the story, but even... Yeah, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. 
He is born in, like I said, 1893 in Newport, Vermont, to a town with a population of about 5,000. And it's a logging town. His dad is one of the uh, loggers in it. And uh, from a very young age, Stuart Holbrook was kind of interested in writing. There's, uh, in, in this book that I source quite a bit, Wildmen, Wobblies, and Whistlepunks, a lowbrow history of the Northwest. Uh, the author's, in, the editor's introduction says that he is writing as early as age eight. Like he's, yeah. and, and, and he gets to be pretty prolific. Uh, at the height of his career, he's writing like three or 5,000 words a day. So it's one of those things where if you start young and you just keep at it, you'll go at it. Another thing he started like young. Cocaine. Yeah, yeah. Another thing he started young at was drinking. Apparently he started roughly at the age of eight and started smoking at the age of 11. So through all of this, just know that he is. Brown out drunk. Just about, yeah. So uh, growing up, he is involved in uh, a lot of forestry. And it's interesting, the the logger relationship to uh, kind of American colonialism. Because in the book, A Native American History of the United States, they make a very clear point about the way America is settled is through this, this thing they identify as settler colonialism. Mm-hmm. Which is basically you send a shock troop of poor white trash to kind of claim a territory and get into fights with native inhabitants. And then slowly industry and government settle in, and then all of a sudden, hey, this is settled American territory. And then you just keep pushing the white trash west and promising them, like, hey, hey, you got, you guys will get it this time. Like, you guys... So I want to make the point that, like, it's really interesting that poor people are considered, like, lazy, bad at what they do, da, 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 but it's always the people we send to the new areas. It's like, yeah. you know, the ones who will put up with the worst shit ever? Poor people. Yeah, we'll get, we're, I have episodes You know who will about... sign up for the military? Poor people. Yeah, y'all are okay with being dirty. Yeah. I mean, like, if you grew up knowing, like, I, I didn't grow up, like, poor necessarily, but we weren't rich, but, like, when you grow up knowing, like, you need to do a fucking job, and you need to, like, do what they ask you to do with the job... Do some gross shit. I grew up that way too, but I married into not doing shit. Oh man, that sounds lovely. Yeah, I cuddle with cats for a living. Well, I think part of it is there's, we talked about it in the Matthew Paul Daddy episode, but there is a a vacuum that's created in the white middle class because you're suppressing minorities of all types, uh, specifically black people, but like just about anybody who's not a white person is suppressed. So you get this weird, this false sense of not just supremacy, but prosperity. And you can take value and pride in hard work because at the end of the day, a thing that doesn't exist anymore, which is you can just set money aside, buy a house, and you retire. You don't have to work anymore at a certain point. The, the retirement age used to just be, cool, I have a house. Like that used yeah, to be. Yeah, now I'll just do things to maintain myself, but I don't have to make money to mm-hmm. get property. And Stuart grows up in this time, and in the logging camps, especially in the East Coast, there's this weird, tr- there, there's a tradition of the earliest unions in America start in industries like logging, ma- uh, uh, machinist shops, that sort of thing. So he's in the surrounding of, like, solidarity. It's that false it's in that vacuum of suppressing people and creating prosperity for mm-hmm. people. So he's seeing a, a pattern of success and like value to his hard work, uh, which I think kind of defines his character because throughout most of his life, he's always working when he is 18. The family moves to Winnipeg. And I, I just want to make, make sure I'm harping on the fact <laughs> that like his family was loggers. He was working from a logging camp, probably from the time he's eight or so doing all kinds of like shit work, but he's also writing this whole time. And drinking and smoking cigars the whole time. Uh, he's like Ron Swanson in Parks and Rec. A little bit, yeah. And when he's but here's my question, Patrick. When do you peg? Uh, you said when a peg. When a peg. You can't tell us when you peg. Well, Pearl is listening, and I don't want to ruin her tragedy. Continue. All right, so at 18, the family moves to Winnipeg, and he drops out of high school to be a reporter. He is simultaneously uh, writing for, like, a logging newsletter, because they, they distribute news amongst themselves, and working in the logging camps. After that, though, uh, at the age of 18, he starts playing, he starts looking for other ways to make money. He starts playing minor league baseball. Eventually, he gets into vaudeville as a yodeler uh, and joins an acting company called the Harry Sinclair Stock Company with Boris Karloff. 
So, like, for a year, they tour until one night, uh, Harry Sinclair just runs off with all the money. Like, it's, <gasps> like they have a good show, takes the money, and just disappears. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> does that not sound does, like nine Does that comedy? sound familiar <laughs> yeah. with what's happening in Portland all the fucking time? Yeah. Sorry, Pearl. I'm, I'm making this about drama. No, okay. Pearl's mom said she appreciates when we cuss about labor issues because it lets her know how passionate we are. So, Harry Sinclair... I just say inappropriate things all the time. That's, that's fine. what's going through my mind. That's perfectly <laughs> acceptable. So, after this, World War One strikes up. He enlists. He makes it to the rank of First Sergeant and sees services in the Trench of France, which is some horror show shit. This is... Uh, in the First World War, we have instances of people just... <clears throat> Climbing up a mountain to die, knowing they're just going to climb up a mountain to die. Like, it's just, one person described it as a factory of death, because the, the just, it's, it's, it's brutal. Uh, first Sergeant... It's like that Spider-Man musical where the guy who played Spider-Man kept dying, right? Yes, exactly like that. <laughs> Sorry, just uh, what it made me think of. He makes it to the rank of First Sergeant, which I looked over some ranks, that's actually one of the higher non-commissioned officer ranks you can get, so he's pretty... He, he impresses the people around him enough. He's also, in over the course of fighting in trenches, advancing through the ranks, uh, writing, directing, and acting in plays and participating in army newsletters. <laughs> How do you have plays in trench warfare? Well, because you're not always in warfare, and I don't know exactly, but I mean, that's... They were made of hardier stuff back then. Oh, yeah. I'm, like, like that, I don't think I would be able to remember my lines in between trench battles. Yeah. No, that's fair. I mean, it's gonna be, I guess, I guess from, like... You have to have a lot of understudies. And, like... There is that. Like, like, you're Juliet, and you're Juliet, and you're Juliet, and you're Juliet, and you're Juliet. Juliet. Five minutes later, you're Juliet, and you're Juliet, and you're Juliet. The person at the end of the line is like, yes! Uh, So when at the end of World War I, he gets out, he gets to participate in the last log drive of Connecticut, which, uh, as a river pig, all of which sound like sexual innuendos. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm pretty sure I sold River Pigs the movie when I worked at the porn store. But what a River Pig is, is it's the person that goes, so like, you, you cut down I all the trees. There's a pig that lives in the river! Ish. You cut down all the trees, you put them in the river, and you let the river do most of the work, but the logs will jam and they'll get stuck. So a River Pig is one of three people. You're at the very front, you're the most agile, and you're kind of guiding the logs down the river. You're in the middle, and you're making sure they're not getting caught. Or you're in the safest job, which is at the end, making sure everything's getting caught up. But those other two jobs are dangerous, because if you fall in the front or in the middle, you got, like, a couple of tons of lumber that you got to maneuver around. So, like... You're dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they had these Or off- severely maimed. Yeah, they had, but it was a popular job uh, because it pays well for yeah. the danger, right? And white men are dumb. Yeah, we are. It kind of makes me think of uh, bull rest, bull riding at the rodeo. Yeah, and they had or, these awesome you know, log rolling. They had these awesome uh, uh, boots that had like twelve inch spikes, so that they could sink into the logs and keep them from 12 rolling. Twelve inch. I don't spikes. know if that makes me feel any better though. Yeah, I, I just thought it was cool. That just means, like, I'm attached to the log. <laughs> the log you. Under I like the idea of thinking of them as, like, sheep herders, but, like, the, but the most metal sheep herder. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Like, it's... it's like, these sheep will kill you. But it was one of the last of its kind in Connecticut. Uh, because, because it's a bad idea? And because the logging industry... One of the big issues with logging industry, uh, especially in the 18 and early 1900s, is they don't think of conservation... Like, like they just all. they just see this huge continent and they're like, well, we've only gotten into a third of it. Like, yeah, it's, it's we can like, waste all of that. Yeah, and and trees grow all the time. Like trees, they just grow like trees, so it'll be fine. <laughs> Meanwhile, just vast swaths of no man's land. It's great. It's great. So that got him uh, quite a bit of money doing that job as a river pig. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> They're better up in one dude at the end. Can was we like, just call this episode River Pig? Maybe, yeah, yeah. That'll do River Pig. That'll do. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1920, he uh, takes the money uh, from that, and he goes on a vacation to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, to check out the timber there. Like, he's he's in addition, an, another this thing... This guy knows how to have a good time. Yeah, another, well, <laughs> another thing that's weird about this time is that, like, the loggers respect and like the woods. Like, the, the men on the ground are like, 
Yes. The, the lumberjacks on the ground actually enjoy nature, and they, they and respect wood. the tree and wood. Yes, and wood. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw Dave Coulier with the little Muppet go, and wood. Steeds are all about the wood. Yeah. Got it. But they, they actually appreciate the, the nature, and they, they care about the animals. They know about the land around them. Meanwhile, the dudes at top are the ones that are like, let's clear-cut this whole valley, move to the next one. Uh, one, one of the issues is that the trees on the east coast are shorter and smaller than trees on the west coast. Trees on the west coast have had a longer time to Where? grow. Here's why. White people didn't show up for a while. Yeah, yeah, we that's just, how. But the Native Americans are really good stewards of the land before white people get here. One of the things that's described by the earliest of uh, European explorers is how things are almost laid out like a park. Uh, one, one really good example of the kind of... Uh, terraforming, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, than Native Americans do. Buffalo, New York, is named after Buffalo, where Buffalo lived in New York. Yeah. Buffalo are native to the central plains of America. That means somebody had to coordinate and take the effort to take these animals hundreds, thousands oh of miles, yeah. right? And then create an environment that they were able to live in without any of the tools of modernity, without any of the scientific reading and bullshit. So the nature was very well taken care of. One of the things they would do is they would light fires in big forests, small fires that they contained so that the brush could grow. Because one of the issues is bigger trees won't catch on. Well, it's not an issue, but bigger trees won't catch on fire uh, in a smaller fire because they are dense and full of water. So like yeah. the fire just kind of passes over them, and then that allows them to have a more nutrient-enriched soil. But what white people see is stupid Indians were fucking lighting the ground on fire. Yeah, what? What? I do have this question. What do white people have against doing whatever the people who have already been dealing with something do? Because that doesn't help white supremacy. A lot of it is money. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I know there's a lot more nuanced answers than that, but a lot of it is somebody is saying, hey, I'm going to give you a hundred bucks to go do this I'm thing. just saying, like... Taiwan is still quarantined, so I'm wondering why we aren't. Because I feel like they it probably it's, know what they're doing. It's almost like one country is closer to some sort of metric of socialism than another. If, if <laughs> I wish I'd gone to school so I had better words! I yeah. keep on hearing people talking about like the social capital score that you have like in China. And someone's like, yeah, in America we just have a credit score. Yeah. Like, you still have a score. It's the exact same thing. And I was like, oh, that makes me feel a little better now. And worse. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how, like, seeing the connection makes me feel better, but then realizing what the connection means, I'm like... A lot of this starts in Holbrook's time. He, he's seeing a lot of it happen. That's actually part of why he's going to the Northwest, is Damn, because... There's a, there's a lot of people in this time period, we, we talked about it again in the Oregon episode, but there's a lot of leftish people, a lot of radical people, who are drawn to the Northwest for the same reason. Like now. Yeah, because it's the furthest away from the federal government. So you can, you can go be some form of radical, have some form of organization. So when he gets to the Northwest, he's actually so impressed by everything, both the beauty and the people, that he's like, screw it, I'm, I don't need to go back. Gets a job uh, uh, with a Vancouver, B.C. Uh, logging company. There's an interesting story about he gets hired because he had a bowler cap. Uh, and it's super important to know that through all of history, like all of American history, United States history specifically... Uh, if you, your, your hat says a lot about your social standing. And the bowler cap was just volumes. It was just weird and unique in 1923 or in 1920 mm -hmm. in British Columbia. So this logger dude is like, I don't even care if you're good at it. Your hat is weird. So you're hired. So, so for the next three I years. I want a job for that. Wow. That's a whole criteria. different level of white privilege. I, so that's was, amazing. Like, <laughs> I was just going to say To that. illustrate. <laughs> I oh, think damn. I would do very well I wish at any job I apply for. As an animal trainer. I have an elephant, like, snuggy hat. I did not know Rochelle's secret for her identity was as an elephant, but, like, I'm you more got of that a trunk. blue whale, but if we're going to be on <laughs> land, elephant works. All right, all right. So, in 1923, he starts working at logging camps. He does all the jobs. He's medic. He's uh, in charge of the for like in charge of waking up everybody in the morning. He's one of the actual loggers. He uh, is also writing 
in the logging newsletter, and uh, this is when he f- first gets his taste of like making money as a writer. Uh, he quits the logging industry in 1923 after he sells his first story for a hundred dollars. Damn. Uh, in 1923, translated to now, that's one thousand six hundred dollars. So once he sells a story for that, this he's like, dude was a baller. Yeah. He, he moves to Portland in 1923. Yeah. yeah, that's why. And he becomes one of Portland's most famous people. He moves here because of the library, which was started by previous uh, Recyclables topic, uh, Matthew Paul Deddy. So mm, good Deddy. old yep, good old fucking racism brought him here. Deddy uh, was well ready. Yes. Uh, in racism. Yes, he was. He was... Yeah! Uh, he also moves here because uh, Portland is centrally located in the logging industry. There's shit all over the north, all over the south of us. So uh, uh, if you can imagine, there were trees everywhere. Once yeah, upon a time. that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and he ended up getting work for, um, uh, this was where I was actually going to talk about labor issues. Because at the time, uh, at the end of World War One, they cracked down on what they consider seditious behavior, i.e. anarchists and leftish and in particular, and yeah, but in particular, labor organizations that are trying to get both black people and white people, in particular, to be like, "Oh, we have the same issue." issue. Wow, yeah. this is crazy. It's weird how the foot on your throat is the knee on mine. It's weird <laughs> how that works. It's it's whoa. Uh, at, what's going on at the time is that at the end, right before we get into World War One, the IWW, the International Workers Union, which has uh, gets called the Wobbly, I found out wobbly, for very wobbly, wobbly, wobbly. very racist reasons. Well, the ones wobbly, they, 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 they what are the reasons? Them. I the, love the name though. It, it comes, it, it's <sighs> apocryphal, but apparently it comes from a, a Chinese American trying to say the letter W. No, yeah, I was super disappointed to. It's apocryphal, so I don't know the truth of that. Yeah, I'm that. hoping it's like. I hope it's not true because I definitely enjoy saying wobbly. I what did hear is, that the Cracker Barrel thing wasn't true, so that's you see, what I assumed that the Wobblies were named after this beautiful Fly Young Red song, Wobble. I'll find it while you talk and okay. then just start playing it out of nowhere. <laughs> so what's going on is before World War One, the IWW, the work. Yeah, yeah, that was on the radio in 1919. Yeah, that would be a lot better. <laughs> Just in 1919, their minds are... I'm picturing that, like, Marty McFly line. <laughs> <laughs> Your great grandkids are going to be into this. So, and right before the First World War, the Industrial Workers Union, which is, to to put it most succinctly, a union that's like, let's just have a union for everybody. Industrial workers... Hamburger flippers, dog walkers, we're all one big union. Fuck the people with money. What about influencers? I don't know. I feel like that would be management. I feel like I feel like influencers are management. I'm going to be honest. No, we're not. I'm, just <laughs> I'm not an influencer. I mean, maybe I, I, am, I am. I'm not making any money for it. Yeah, me neither. Well, no, no, I kind of do. Like, every once in a while, people send me $10 on Venmo, and they're like, get yourself some coffee, sweetie. And I'm like, yay, yeah. I can afford coffee today. That's, that is my favorite when the, the magic, the magic, like I hope I get, I just get coffee. Industrial workers union wants big union for everyone, but. What about sex workers? Them too, actually. Yeah. Dope. We're, we're pretty on board with that. For realsies? For realsies. That's dope. That's um, why it fucks with socialists. So, the, so at the same time though, uh, they're putting a lot of work stoppages into place. Uh, they're slowing down business and production right when America is going to go into war. Uh, but they're also the only people really going around and preaching union. Like, people are kind of starting wildcat strikes on their own. There's a whole era that we could call, like, the the the, the labor wars in American history. And this is where the Pinkertons come from, right? Yeah. Damn. Uh, uh, I only know that because of random things. And it's a Weezer album name. So so what's going on, though, is that the, uh, the IWW is the only one kind of preaching unions to people, but they're starting up at random. At the start of the, right before World War One or right when we get into it, I don't remember which, the government starts its own union, which is not as effective, like doesn't push as hard as the Wobblies, but it does give some protections and some rights for the workers. Okay. Uh, and so our guy, Stuart Holbrook, goes to work writing for the government union newspaper, and starts getting in good with the Wobblies, because he's covering the same stories as them, he's interviewing So he's like them. the original Bob Marley. Maybe. I don't know Bob Marley very well, actually. I don't know... Uh, so there are, like, two major parties in Jamaica, and, like, he 
kind of act as like the bridge between them, and then they um, try to kill him because oh, that's oh. how. Minus the Government. trying to kill him part. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Well, but, that's the whiteness. Yeah. Again, that part helps. That that does. That does. That's great. He also he also does another great thing white guys are great at, which is uh, reselling things. What he'll do is he'll write a story for the logger newspaper. Mm-hmm. If it turns out that particular issue sells really well or, or gets a lot of talk, he'll sell he'll edit it and then sell it to the Oregonian and then sell it to nation uh, national newspapers. That's right? beautiful. Yeah. That and is the whitest thing I've ever heard. That's and beautiful. he is responsible for this is why he's not considered like a, a historian historian in the caliber of somebody like Howard Zinn. Because what he'll do is he'll go downtown Portland, he'll hang out with drunks. That's what I do. That's most of stand-up. I, I, I guess I'm a historian now. Yes. In 19... Yeah, so in 1924, he is uh, a freelance writer. He'll write these stories. He'll resell them. Of course I didn't mark it. God damn it, Patrick. Here it is. Here it is. So this is his daily routine for drinking in the middle of all this. He is writing something oh, from three to five thousand... going to hurt. Three to five thousand dollars... Three to five thousand words a day. He's selling them like to his logging newspaper, yeah. selling it to the Oregonian. In addition like to Andy that, Warhol. Uh, he quits drinking in 1934. So at the height of this, uh, for the last four years of my drinking days, I consumed an average of one quart of hard stuff daily. It was my custom to throw down a jolt of whiskey as soon as I got out of bed, take another as soon as I got the fire in the furnace going, a third just before I started shaving, needed to steady my hand. And a fourth when I sat down to what I laughingly called my breakfast. At 10 a.m., rain, snow, or shine, I had two stiff jolts at my office. At noon, with some amiable help from a friend or two, we put away either one or two pints of hard stuff. At about 3 p.m. And I, hard stuff, I'm assuming, means liquor. It's I, not beer. I'm assuming so, yeah. Or heroin. Ah! Heroin cola. Proud sponsors. At 3 p.m., I went to my Lagers for two or three quick ones, and at 5 p.m., my number one bootlegger called for me and brought two pints. That is two pints every day except Saturday. On Saturday, a good provider that I have always been, I had the lad bring me five or six pints. <laughs> so six pints. And that's the beer, I'm assuming. That's, well, this, uh, a bootlegger is bringing him this during the Prohibition so era. six oh pints God. of moonshine. Oh, my God. <laughs> The only time I've ever... This man couldn't see. By the way, this guy... Here, I'll give you... uh, I'll find a picture real quick to give you guys... I didn't know you could drink moonshine by the pint. Yeah, the only time I've ever had moonshine, I had like a shot of it, which I didn't even finish, because I think I spat some of it out. And it's the only time I've ever puked in the gutter. Yeah. So, I mean, I I puke in the bathroom. I mean, here's our guy in the middle. Oh. So you can, I mean, he's, he's not a big dude. Like he's, he's standing upright. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> he's, but it's just, he's not, he's, he's a functional alcoholic. He's That's like five, two, a buck 50, maybe. Is the other guiding logs down a river? He's my size. He might be a little thinner, <laughs> yes. but he's my size. And he's just doing quarts of, of moonshine a day. Uh, and then also writing three to five thousand words a day. Jesus. Uh, and part of his interview process is he'll go to the bar and he'll get uh, stories from people, rewrite them, sell those. And that's why he's not like like I was saying before, he's not considered the caliber of historian that like Howard Zinn is because he wouldn't always verify his stuff. Is he like the Carlos like Mencia of? No, he's a barroom historian. Less so. Yeah, he's more barroom because more like he a does. Robin as, as he gets older, like as he goes further along in his career, once he starts writing books about these things, he actually does do the research and, and backs up the information. But when he's writing these like three, oh. five thousand word articles a day for the newspaper and then rewriting them, and he's also editing and stuff. So he'll the reason what I was getting to is the reason we have the uh, the legend of the Shanghai tunnels in Portland is because of him. He never said tunnels specifically, but he has this, uh, you, you can listen to it on uh, Oregon's Weird History. I will not. I will link to it in the sources because <laughs> we're getting better at those. But there's a story about, there was this thing called crimpers. So, we, yeah, you use them in your hair. I love crimping. Yeah. It's so beautiful. So when the, it looks like waffle fruit. When, when the sailors would show up <laughs> to town, we, we've heard about Shanghai where like people just get kind of knocked out and then they wake up in the sea and you're like, oh, guess I'm a sailor. Yeah. What would happen is those boats come back to dock, right? And you let all the sailors off while you're doing that. And you put them into a boarding house. 
and the boarders were responsible for getting the sailors back to the ship. So you're like, hey, lads, let's have a drink. Everybody gets knocked out, wakes up in the ship halfway out in the ocean. And the captain pays you something called a blood fee for that. Here's the thing. You don't have to necessarily have experienced sailors yeah. when you do this, then that's where crimpers come in. Is is maybe you're just a bum who's in town for the day, you're on your way to go logging, you wake up in the middle of an ocean and you're like, I'm a sailor now. He uh, uh our guy, uh Stuart Holbrook, writes a story also called Black Burden, by the way. How is which this? I'm pretty sure is equally racist. That's just so fucking wild though. It also speaks to the to the willingness to get drunk of of the general human that like like there is a not zero chance that I will wake up in the ocean like yeah. indentured to some psycho ship captain. But they probably didn't talk about it, so you were just like um, that is a reoccurring theme in recyclables. A lot of yeah, drunk unprocessed are, trauma. Like, people are just go missing, and people yeah. went missing all the time back in the day. So. I guess what I'm saying like, is like... And went drinking and disappeared. Probably died in a river or something. Oh, it's so stressful. Yeah. So, in 1924, he marries <laughs> Catherine Gill, who is the programmer at KOIN Radio Coin. Oh, no! And this is before radio is really big, so there's actually a very good chance he wrote some of the news stories that appeared on there. It's not like we have radio archives from 1924, so there's no exact proof, but it seems heavily implied that he helped there. Uh, in 1928, he started working freelance for the Oregonian. And that might sound like he got ripped off, but he actually took advantage of it to the point where, uh, during one month <clears throat> of the Depression, he actually made more money than the publisher uh, <laughs> working for the Oregonian. Oh my god. And it's about it was a hustler. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was thinking. And so it's about 1928 that he starts kind of really getting into lowbrow history stuff, where he starts going from the stories at the bars to researching them and double checking that they're actually real. So he's not drinking now. Uh, it, he quits in 1934. Okay. Uh, and so what I'm hearing is I should be drinking two quarts of moonshine a day until you're in your 40s. Yeah, so I still have time. Yes! I, I quit so you can have my share. Um, <laughs> he quits drinking in 1934, and uh, the next year, in 1935, he becomes the editor for something called The End of the Oregon Trail. It's a... Basically, uh, during the new the New Deal, they do they commission a bunch of art style things, including books. It's when they have people go and record the last of the slave recollections, and that's its whole own complicated stories. Because like you'll have former the children of former masters talking to slaves and trying to get their biographies, and it's like this awkward thing of like, I used to change yeah. your diapers. I, I all right, cool. Another thing they do is they have each state kind of, like, come up with their own propaganda about their own history. And he gets put in charge of editing the end of the Oregon Trail. And that's that's when he goes from being kind of casually interested and in compiling these stories for fun into, like, oh, I'm really into this shit. And in 1938, he publishes his first book, Holy Old Mackinac. Uh, it goes through 17 printings and sells at least 200,000 copies. Yeah. And what it is, is throughout all of his career, he's like the guy for lumberjacks, at least in the Northwest. If you want a story about what's going on in the lumber industry, you at least want Holbrook's opinion. Uh, after this dude he, sounds hot, if you're a lumberjack. I mean, yeah, I'm a lumberjack. I mean, not my type exactly. No, he's like, actually he's, kind of a dandy. Yeah, yeah, like... So, uh, in, in 38, he, he, he puts out the book specifically because he's one of those guys that's like, the logging, he sees that the logging industry is going away. And he also is, uh, like a lot of loggers, really into conservation. Like, he's like, we need to preserve, especially these giant ass trees that are the last of their kind historically. We should probably do something to keep them around. Uh, and so he, he collects all of the kind of, all of the stories, all the myths, as well as much actual history as he can, and puts it in this book, Old Holy Mackinac, and it makes him the logging guy kind of nationally, maybe even internationally. But his stories start selling at this point in uh, really prestigious uh, cross-coast publications. Uh, the issue is that they, you don't make a ton of money selling these stories unless you're kind of like working... Like, even though he does make a lot of money freelance, he's also partially drinking it away. He's got a family. Um... That's the mistake. But that's your problem right there. Yeah. After after the book, he you, you, 
you're correct about his proliferacy. After his book, he moves to Massachusetts. Is that it is now. That's, that's the beauty. I want it to be. It's beautiful. That's word. the beauty of the English language. It is just yeah. Anyway, he moves to Massachusetts with his wife, and he puts out five books over the course of four years. Let them live, which is about industrial accidents, and is kind of saying like we these people deserve rights and they need to do something. Oh, this guy was a revolutionary. The Iron Brew, which is about the steel industry, very much kind of him doing the steel industry the way he did logging. Um, Ethan Allen, which is uh, I had it described as a satirical biography. Um, Murder Out Yonder, which is one of the earliest true crime stories. Uh, like like very early in the genre, and lastly, none more courageous, which is about uh, people. World War Two was going on at the time, and as a former veteran, of course, he's gonna like yeah. want to write about that. He moves back to the she Pacific. Hot. He, yeah, he moves back. To I the wouldn't Pacific. kick him out of bed for eating crackers. No, I I probably kick it. Uh, <laughs> You've never heard that phrase. I'm not from Montana. Oh, I've heard I that saw phrase, it. I've I'm seen it in a couple different things. I'm also from secretly, secretly from 1964, so I've heard that <laughs> phrase. Yeah, I mean, my parents were born in the 40s, so it's kind oh, of that fair. makes sense. Yeah. You wouldn't know stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, uh, but he, it's also adorable. <laughs> he moves back to the Pacific Northwest and gets involved with a bunch of different things, uh, particularly this thing called Keep Washington Green. We talked about it uh, in Cost of Convenience. Uh, the Pacific Northwest proliferate with racists so over the course of there's an effort to kind of get the racist taste out of the northwest Mm -hmm. by saying we're environmentalists uh like right from the start washington is earlier to the game than oregon is then why does it look like garbage because we suck at everything Um, listen we don't hate black people we just believe in purity that's what they changed it to washington is all like clear-cut and it's shitty. It's its own nightmare. History assholes all the way down. Yeah. Um, after he moves t- back to Oregon in 1947, his wife passes away. What happened? Um, I did not know. Actually, I she's didn't... just some chick. It yeah, doesn't yeah, matter. She's a woman in a man's hey. life. Does she really matter? He gets married a year later, anyhow. Yeah. Oh. I mean, we already <laughs> said her name. I'm. I, you know, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Did we say her do? name? Catherine Gill. Catherine yeah, Gill. Say her name. Catherine Gill, which say is funny. Dead now. I only, I know his his second wife's first name is Sybil. I didn't write down her maiden name uh, because who cares? Holy yeah, shit! She's again. She's a woman in a man's life. Yeah. Story. What does she? Her matter? life didn't matter until she married Holbrook. You exactly. know that they, you know that they asked a bunch of like cis men how they would feel if the if the rule was to take their wife's name and how they like immediately were like what are we gonna kill boy babies now? Yeah. Like yeah. that's like. They- <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. It took me forever to understand the the phrasing of frag, the fragility of masculinity and patriarchy. Yeah. But now every time I see it, I'm like, oh, okay, that's exactly yeah, that's it, okay. That's, that's it. what you meant. That's what that's you it. meant. I was, I was like, no, 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 we're really dumb. <laughs> Sorry, but that just made me think of that. Yeah. Uh, from the end of World War II to 1964, though, he's one of the most famous people in Oregon because throughout this entire time. While writing these books, he's still writing for magazines, for newspapers all across the country. Um, he writes 12 more books uh, that are really in the vein of this lowbrow history after he moves back to Oregon. And he's the kind of celebrity where the Oregonian is like, so-and-so, the, the president visited today and stopped in and saw Mr. Holbrook. And he's got a pop, like, um, I read through this book while then so I- <laughs> I'm going to cut that out. <laughs> But I'm assuming it's accurate. I don't really. Uh, know oh no, that I don't. Well. I don't like. And I don't think I fuck that guy. Anyway, I don't think he. I'm taking. I guess maybe I don't know. Sorry, that, <laughs> that was the first curveball you threw me that I couldn't even swing at. That I just watched with me. Sorry. We He's, were complaining about last night. Oh, okay, it felt really good. Yeah, it did. Okay, so um, he in. Roughly in 1958 or so, he... Damn, he, this dude keeps living. Yeah. he. We're almost to the end, actually, because he, he, he starts a thing called... He starts painting for fun, because, as we've mentioned, he writes. And, and everything he does, he kind of puts into his writing. And in his free time, when he's reading, it's stuff that he's going to write about. And he starts kind of getting really stressed, and he's quit drinking, so like there's a lot of stress. So his friends are like, why don't you take up painting? He starts pro- bringing friends to his house to show them paintings from somebody named Mr. Otis. Okay. 
and they're in what he calls primitive moderne, which is just modern with an E at the end. It's very important for the E to be at the end. Uh, and what Holbrook does is he makes up a life for Mr. Otis. Mr. Otis, I should very much clarify it by now, is Stuart Holbrook. Yeah. It's, it's his paintings, and he's just made up a persona I didn't form. see that coming. And he, I'm shocked! <laughs> that was a weird twist. And he, he starts off uh, just bartering the paintings, right? And and the joke is that they're for Mr. Otis, but all the barters are for things he, he wants uh, as Holbrook. So, like, he's he's famously not a fan of dogs, so he... Dope. So, me neither. So he trades paintings for dog repellents, because that's just what Mr. Otis wanted. And then one day he, like, sells one of these paintings for, like, 500 bucks, and is like, the fuck? People buy these? And kind of has a second career near the end of his life as a painter. Uh, in 19... Is he Banksy? A little bit, because he'll do things, he'll... Oh, let me see if I have one in here. I believe in you. So you can kind of see it. You can kind of see it at the bottom here. It's it's been called uh, reminiscent of Dolly and yeah. Grandma Moses, uh, yeah. but the deal is his his subjects are always like like one is like the 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 tax of the white man, and it's like a clear cut forest and shit like that. Where it's like very much his political messaging as well as his painting style. Uh, but his whole life he just plays it off as it's somebody else because it's kind of his. His outlet that's not his writing, that's all of these stories. Um, in 1964, he passes away from a stroke at the age of 71. Uh, it's interesting if you've been paying attention to the other episodes, because what's going on in Oregon, one thing to really know, over the course of his career, he's constantly writing about wobblies, uh, wild men, and whistlepunks. He's writing about the lowbrow history, about what... What is what, a whistlepunk? Um, yeah, what is a whistlepunk? I... I should have looked that up. I believe it's the it's the person that like Don't lie to us. Is it a punk that's also into ska? Yes. I mean look it up while you continue <laughs> talking. <laughs> uh but his his writing is about anarchists and leftists. One of one of my favorite stories in here is about a place called Home in Washington that's one of the truly anarchist cities. Like it, it gets started after a socialist attempt gets started and a bunch of people show up to do nothing. And they're like, all right, we want something slightly better than socialism. Let's do an anarchy. And they're actually really successful. Uh, and he he's writing about this as Oregon is being run by the KKK. Like, he's he's very much kind of trying to be one of those speak truth to power. Yeah, he's trying to profit off of it. He's yeah. very much very much what a lot of podcasts are doing. Like he Stories that I've read in here, I've heard on the dollop, and I can hear his influence in people like uh, uh, Robert Evans. Uh, the reason that I, I think... found it, y'all. Okay, what is it? So, the whistle operator was known as a whistle punk who was placed between the men attaching the cables and the donkey puncher. Uh, the donkey puncher did not literally punch donkeys, but the job was basically that. Yeah, there's... Why were you punching donkeys? This is in regards to, to a steam donkey. A oh. steam-powered logging engine. Okay, why are all these things being named after They're, animals that are not animals? We've got whistle pigs, they had we this, got steam donkeys. <laughs> they, the, the, yeah, the steam donkey was this huge engine that they used to do things. Take a okay. wheel! I, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> and my understanding is that at some point, like, like the there was one of these stories about a dude who claimed to punch his oxen to get it... Uh, uh, to get moving, well, that's and, not instead what you're of supposed to do. instead of whipping, like, but because he's because he's such a burly man, a punch I'm oxen, such a man, a punch oxen. Look at my balls, punching oxen. Yeah, that dude has some real issues okay. going um, on. I do want to one of one of Holbrook's big things that he wanted people to know: the term skid row, as we use it, is wrong. A skid row was what would happen when you pushed all the logs down a hill, and along that row. Various, like, saloons and whatnot would set up shops so the loggers would stop, grab a drink, and go back to work. And that's what the skid rows were. They weren't the, the worst part of town. It wasn't until... He, he, he made a big deal all of his life to try to get people to dispel that myth. So I thought, I thought in honor of the man... I'd, I'd I will admit, though, that a bunch of bars and brothels set up like for room. loggers to stop in... It's kind of called... It's the same thing! Yeah, it's kind of like... It's a tangerine. <laughs> but it was one of his things, so I thought I would point it out. He, yeah. he was very big on that. Um, 
I think he, he is widely forgotten in a lot of spaces. I think specifically because, um. Who? Uh, Mr. Holbrook. Okay. Because he was, okay. he was, he was the biggest celebrity in Oregon for 20 odd years, but it's in the era when a Oregon. Where he wasn't famous. Continue. Yes, oh I'm my sorry. god, I'm so sorry. I was spacing out <laughs> for a second. I was thinking about the cookies. Those cookies are so good. What's the name of the bakery? Anzun and Bakery. Um, yes. Uh, it's like Foster and... So... <laughs> Continue. What happens when you get three ADHD? <laughs> How many ADHD you have? Okay, so I think he gets I'm forgotten because of a number of things. One, Oregon's identity... Oregon is in the 40s and 50s when he was doing most of his work mm-hmm. trying to get people we talked about it in the cost of convenience and in math a little bit in the Matthew Paul Daddy episode we try to use environmentalism and liberalism to erase our pretty horrific past and pretend like it's not there and he's famous in the era when the KKK are in their most power and he's famous for talking about anarchists and people who want to unionize and stuff in an era when we're like, we want to phase that out. At least yeah. the powers that be want to phase that out. So it's one of those things where, like, we don't want to remember the era at all, and we don't want to think about the things he was talking about. So he just kind of gets erased from history. Uh, Mr. Otis's uh, exhibits are all over the place. Honestly, one of the few things you'll find that are of him are copies of this book, The Wild Men, Wobblies, and Whistle Punks, that was compiled by Brian Booth in 1992. The the other reason I think he's forgotten is that Oregon, like, as we've evolved, especially from the 60s, we've tried to pretend that we're on the cutting edge. And it's, again, that thing about we like to pretend we're at the end of history. Mm-hmm. And so we like to think, oh, we were the last, air quotes, the last place kind of settled, you know. And one of the things is the the Wild West kept going until the 20s. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's, and we don't acknowledge that in America for a whole lot of reasons, not the least of which imperialism, colonialism. But my point is, I think the fact that this guy was in the middle of it, and he clearly benefited quite a lot from it. I don't think he ever broke... Like, I think he broke into upper class the way you do when you're famous without money. Yeah. Where, like, he didn't... He got all the perks, but he didn't get any of the benefits, so to speak. So, like, he was important, but nobody was necessarily crafting policy around him or anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. And... So, like, Paul Mooney. Yeah. And so, I think I think that is part of why we forget about him and part of why we ignore a lot of the things that he touched on. Because... So, exactly like Paul Mooney. Probably, yeah. I don't know Mr. Mooney's biography well enough to be like, yeah. Like, Continue. Um, his, some of his stories are gaining more popularity. Like I said, we're hearing them in podcasts and whatnot. I think for fun issues in the future, we'll probably read some stories out on this. Uh, since we've got just enough time, we're going to have break. And then for the, the next episode, as it will be in the feed, I'm going to read one of my favorite stories out of this book called The Three Sirens. Yeah, baby! All right, so let's... Okay, wow. break. Yeah. That one good. I want pot. Thank you for picking up Recyclables today. Donations to the ACAST streaming service are, of course, always welcomed, but the best way to support the show is by going to patreon.com forward slash recyclables and becoming a patron today. If you can't do that, another great way is by liking, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you use. All right, thanks.